Today, um, I thought I'd give a talk on um, the topic of Zen and psychotherapy. The interesting way in which, uh, as we know, Buddhism comes from the coming together of uh, Buddhism and Taoism in, in China. And um, so Zen is a particularly, uh, it's, a, it's a product of the meeting of those two cultures. Um, in the same way, when uh, Zen came to the West in the uh, beginning of the 20th century, but uh, particularly in the 1950s, um, one of the main ways in which it was received was through Western people who were interested in Western psychotherapy. Um, one of those um, early uh, writers on, on Zen and, and Western psychotherapy was a man called Alan Watts, who wrote a book on Eastern and Western ways of liberation. And also during the 1950s, there was a big conference held in Mexico that was attended by a number of uh, what were then referred to as humanistic psychoanalysts, people like Eric Fromm and Karen Horney, who were interested in uh, the work of D.T. Suzuki and, uh, and Zen Buddhism as, a, as an alternative to the traditional uh, Freudian uh, way of approaching, who believed in these innate uh, sexual and aggressive instincts. Um, Whereas these early humanistic uh, psychoanalysts believed in a more uh, holistic approach to health, and that um, so they were they had an interest in Zen and how Zen could contribute to our understanding of that. Um, there's been uh, since then, of course, a absolute um, growth in. Um, in Buddhism, uh, mindfulness in general, and Western psychotherapy. And um, uh, the Ordinary Mind Zen School, which was founded by Joko Beck, um, uh, Joko uh, being one of the uh, earlier um, teachers who was also a woman, um, became very interested in, in how we could apply Zen practice to our everyday lives as lay practitioners, to everyday lives of relationships and work and, and whatever else comes up for us. And uh, this was in a, a, quite a big change really to traditional Zen practice, which was uh, obviously monastic and, um, and in those earlier times a lot of the uh, the Zen Japanese Zen teachers could be quite um, um, putting a lot of emphasis on almost like a boot camp approach to Zen practice um, and where they would ignore a lot of psychological issues and um, in Buddhism as with other, as with other you know religions Christianity and so forth um, there were a number of uh, scandals that occurred in the uh, in the 80s and 90s uh, and uh, in 2000s, 
with uh, Zen teachers who actually crossed its uh, boundaries um, and, for example, uh, had sex with their students uh, or who also had problems with alcohol. And uh, because of the initial Western approach to Zen t uh, or Eastern teachers in general as somehow being these gurus who were kind of like beyond being human, uh, this was often uh, turned a blind eye to. Um, but, um, you know, Joker was very concerned about this and, uh, and so when she uh, left the particular tradition that she was, uh, she learned in, uh, the White Plum Sangha, her teacher was a guy called Mazumi Roshi, uh, she founded her own school and was uh, wanting to place a lot of emphasis on the importance of not ignoring these uh, psychological issues. Uh, that led, uh, uh, even though you know Zen teachers had you know amazing uh, what we might call openings or Kensho experiences of absolute presentness on the cushion, which may have lasted for a, uh, a few seconds or a few hours or a few days, um, inevitably th these are transient experiences, which and uh, these these so-called enlightenment experiences. And uh, they don't necessarily um, transform us once and for all. And uh, the actual path of transformation is a lifelong process. And, and, and sometimes too, um, Zen or you know, meditation practice in general um, could be taken up by Western students who could use going off to a, becoming a monastic for a while or could use this, these kinds of meditation concentration practices as, as also as ways of uh, avoiding some of the core psychological issues. So Joko was very concerned that uh, there was somehow uh, Zen practice was uh, intimately connected to our psychological transformation as well. Um, one of the uh, only books that I've ever heard Joko Beck talk about, which is mentioned in her second book, it's called Zen and the Psychology of Transformation by a guy called Hubert Benoit. This was written in the 1950s and uh, um, he was a French psychiatrist who um, um, was actually bedridden for a number of years and, and during that time he developed an interest in Zen practice. And she was very influenced by this book on the psychology of transformation. And um, so, in many ways, uh, Joko's work, um, in some ways, is um, in, in, if you look at Western psychotherapy, you can, if you wanted to simplify it, and you could simplify it down to two main traditions: the cognitive tradition and the psychoanalytical tradition, and both of which have, have sprouted many branches. And um, over the past 20 years or so, um, there's actually a bit of an integration taking place as well, where, where cognitive therapies become um, and, 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 uh, and, and sort of psychoanalytical relational therapy have, have moved a lot closer together. And um, so Joko Beck, who was, a, who was a teacher of my teacher, Barry Majid. So Barry was a psychoanalyst. Joko wasn't a trained therapist, but she would often have lots of therapists who would come to see her. And uh, 
when you read Joko's work or listen to her talks, she puts a lot of emphasis on sitting and starting to get to know ourselves intimately. And, um, and that, that starts off with um, starting to really get an idea of what's going on in these spinning minds of ours, these automatic thoughts that are being generated all the time. And um, not only do we observe that on our cushion or our seat while we're sitting, but um, when we start to do that practice of labeling and observing our thoughts, you know, really trying to get specific as we can, such as having a thought, oh, I wish he hadn't done that, or having the thought, you know, oh, having a, a judgment, judgmental kind of thought, just really, really getting to start to see how often we're judging ourselves or judging others. Um, and really starting to start to take, you start to take notice of some of the patterns of these thoughts after a while. And, re and remember, we're not trying to change anything, we're just trying to observe and watch these thoughts. And, um, and then after a while, we start to um, uncover what uh, Joko referred to as um, our core beliefs. And this is quite similar to contemporary cognitive therapy practice um, where cognitive therapy talks a lot about the relationship between core beliefs and our automatic thoughts or uh, sometimes uh, cognitive therapists refer to these core beliefs as schemas. And um, so we can, get, we can get some insight into um, these underlying core beliefs uh, which often are can be traced right back to our childhood. Um, so this is where cognitive therapy comes, comes quite, quite close to psychoanalysis. Um, psychoanalysis has its own version of core beliefs, which sometimes calls core beliefs, or it might call organizing principles. But um, more and more we know we're understanding that most what we would call mental health difficulties, you know, or psychopathology, to use an older term, uh, it, it often comes from very early traumas um, or later traumas and so some of the common traumas in childhood uh, can be traumas of um, abandonment or, or of abuse and these can be big T traumas like really big events that happen like a, a parent dying or a parent leaving uh, or they can be uh, a continuation of very what we call small T traumas where one might have had a critical parent and uh, and would often feel criticized and um, so one develops a sensitivity to criticism as a form of rejection and uh, and um, so we can get a clue in our sitting practice in our, by being mindful in our everyday life of when these these core beliefs or schemas get activated so uh, for, for example, if one had uh, grown up and um, lost, uh, lost uh, I have one person I work with in therapy who lost their mother when uh, they were very, very young, six months, and, um, and then were raised by a fairly cold and distant uh, stepmother, um, and then lived with some grandparents for a while and then was separated from grandparents. and. This whole this, this 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 core belief in the schema around abandonment gets uh, starts to form, and as that starts to form, one starts to form 
protective strategies around, around that, uh, not wanting to re-experience that initial trauma. And, uh, and that these, these protective strategies can take different forms. And uh, so um, this particular person I'm thinking of may have uh, developed um, um, a sense of wanting to become strong and, and tough and began boxing and uh, tried to develop a sense of um, invulnerability in a way. And, um, but every now and again a separation would happen in his life and it would trigger this initial trauma or the initial schema and uh, he would experience very, very high levels of anxiety and panic. And, um, and I'm, I'm now working with this person in his, in his 80s and it's also like we can see the whole life cycle starting as, a, as an infant when we're, and as a child um, when we're very vulnerable. And most of us have a kind of vulnerability schema or core belief because uh, we've all been vulnerable. <laughs> we all start off as vulnerable creatures and it's, it's very unusual for you know, us to go through those vulnerable years without something traumatic happening to us. And as we go through the aging process, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll go through certain stages in that. And, and as we go more towards old age, you can see this very clearly. Um, we become again a bit more dependent and more vulnerable. And our, and our vulnerability schema starts to get activated more as well. Um, and there are certain strategies for dealing with that. But, uh, you know, but ultimately there's... No matter what we do, we can't avoid the process of um, old age and, and ultimately death. And uh, so, in Zen practice, um, we want to um, incorporate getting to understand ourselves in this way. And um, my teacher, Barry Majid, who's a psychoanalyst, um, he was um, his main therapeutic uh, mentor, if you like, was a guy called Heinz Korhut. Who placed, he was a psychoanalyst who placed a lot of emphasis on developmental trauma and the importance of empathy and uh, being understood. And, um, and, and he, he would meet with a lot of people in therapy who had basically never really been understood very well by their parents. And, uh, and through the process of being understood by the therapists, we're able to develop a stronger sense of self and to be able to deal with and feel some of these earlier developmental traumas. And um, one of the, uh, another uh, sort of, um, I guess, parallel between Zen and psychotherapy is that in Zen practice, we do have a, a long-term relationship with the teacher. At some point, you establish a relationship with the teacher and that, that relationship can go on for a long time. And you might not be seeing the teacher three times a week or twice a week as you're doing psychoanalysis, but um, it still is an important relationship. And, um, and, 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 you know, dealing with that relationship is also part of the Zen practice. And, um, and, uh, and, and Barry is also very fond of pointing out that these core beliefs that we have uh, also apply to how we approach practice often. We can kind of like turn practice into, you know, maybe finding a way that we can make ourselves invulnerable in some way. And, um, so often we, we approach practice in the same way as we approach other things in our lives and uh, bring a lot of what Barry calls 
I guess, curative fantasies to practice, that practices, Zen practice is going to somehow magically transform our lives in some way. Well, whereas really, as, as Joko is fond of pointing out, often in practice, um, a lot of it uh, is about actually developing the, the ability to face our pains, to, to, to face our disappointments. And, uh, and, it, and, it, and it's through coming back to what she calls the direct experience of our body, to actually, when we're, when we're in, in the process of having an emotional reaction and we're feeling upset or panicky, how we can actually, through our practice, find a way of really entering into the direct sensations that we're experiencing in our bodies. And it's really, our body is kind of like the gateway into getting back to that place of wonderment and joy, which we may have experienced as, as children, if we were lucky enough to have a safe enough environment. Like there's a sense in which we, the, the, the Zen school that I belong to is called the Ordinary Mind School. And in a sense, the ordinary mind of a child is full of wonderment and joy. We may even have some traces of memory of that within our own bodies. And, um, but, you know, because of our vulnerability as children and the, and the, the inevitability we're going to come up against some external other, and we're going to clo- be closed down over time, it could be at school, it could be at home, or a combination of both, where we experience the external environment as being threatening in some way. And so we narrow and become more constricted. And so, in a way, that's that the, the, the way back to the wonder, the way back to the joy uh, of being present is actually, there's no other way other than actually re-experiencing that pain and that, and that narrowness in our bodies. And, it's a gateway into wonder and ease. And it's something that is, we can get a glimpse of and a touch on in, in this kind of one to two hour practice. You can get a, if you, if, you, if you develop a regular daily practice, which I really recommend, is that you, get a, you start to get a glimpse of it when we sit with our tensions in our bodies and where, where we might be holding stuff in our bodies. And, uh, but definitely if you go on a, a one day or a longer, uh, what we call in Zen sessions or retreats, we'll definitely bump up against this. And, um, and it's through being able to, it's, going, it's not by avoiding that pain or by, um, you know, by trying to cling to something else, but it's actually by allowing ourselves to totally, really open up to the direct experience of that is the gateway back into the wonder. And that's where the, uh, often, you know, therapy might not get to that place. It might help us work on uh, challenging some of our automatic thoughts or core beliefs. Uh, but often that the practice of actually returning again and again and again to our bodies and to the direct experience of this moment is, is the way in which Zen practice can really, really complement and take therapy much further. And, um, and ultimately, you know, in Zen practice, we, we talk about non-duality. We talk about, you know, much of our threat is that our default experience that I'm a kind of something in here and there's a something out there and there's a separation all the time. And also a separation that can occur within ourselves as too when we cut off various 
painful experiences and separate ourselves from that. So the way towards the, the experience of non-duality, of non-separateness, of experiencing that wonderful sense of oneness that is often talked about in mystical experiences or in Zen, is actually through this very ordinary practice of returning again and again and again to coming back to just feeling our bodies, you know, and, and just letting the, you know, noticing what the thoughts are, but we don't, you know, just letting the thoughts go and returning to that direct experience. Um, you know, other examples of, um, you know, core beliefs or schemas that are very common are, are the, they might arise not from our early childhood experiences, but from our culture, from going to school, uh, this, this competitive sort of society we live in. And uh, I find it's very common for people to have core beliefs or schemas around failure. And that, you know, no matter how many accomplishments we might achieve, um, how many pieces of paper we might get, um, we often have that sense of I'm not good enough or I'm, I'm basically a failure or a loser in some way. And, um, so it's, it's you know, seeing this repetition of how we get caught and holding on to these beliefs and the, and the strategies that we develop to try and deal with those beliefs might be trying to be nice. One strategy might be to work really hard or get as many degrees as we can to try and prove to ourselves that I really am, I really am intelligent. And, um, but ultimately, it's, um, if we can let go of all of those and just return to this, this moment, um, we can find a place of ease and joy, and it, but it, it might require opening up to the upset, opening up to the anxiety, opening up to the disappointment. So it's kind of like the, it's almost impossible to arrive at the joy and the ease without going through the gateway of disappointment and anxiety. Because at the core of our being, for all of us, because of this vulnerability and this sense of separateness, there's always a core anxiety. And uh, when we return to the body, it's a kind of sense of returning to, surrendering to uh, our attempts to try and fix things or control things or protect ourselves, but just opening up to the experience. So I'll just leave it at that and um, probably time for one or two questions if anyone wants to have a question or a comment. Okay, well, we'll leave it at that and um, go into a uh, walking meditation.